You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, good morning, church family. If you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to the Gospel according to Luke. Gospel according to Luke. This morning we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 7 together. So I invite you to make your way there. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We are continuing on in our study of the Gospel of Luke the series we're calling From the Manger to the Throne. Church, now I want to invite you to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with his wife Mary, or to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. New Testament scholar David Garland, who wrote an excellent commentary on the Gospel of Luke, he said the following in light of this familiar passage we just read. He wrote this, I quote, It may be unpopular to trespass on popular images associated with Christ's birth and to debunk myths, but it is theologically dangerous to allow the account of his birth to be hijacked by fiction. Christmas fables lure us to seasonal sentimentality and away from the year-round task of discipleship in which we are to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily. Then he says this, they, meaning Christmas fables, only create superficial spirituality. I wholeheartedly agree with Dr. Garland's Words here. It is theologically dangerous to allow the account of Christ's birth to be hijacked by fiction. In other words, we cannot see Jesus in the manger and associate that image with whatever meaning we choose. Christmas fables, as Dr. Garland says, will lure us to seasonal sentimentality, but it will keep us away from the year-round task of discipleship in which we take up our crosses 
daily. So as we reflect on this very, very familiar passage about the birth of Christ, we must resist the temptation to let sentiment or familiarity to kick in. We must fight both of those urges just to feel this warm, fuzzy feeling about Christmas as we come to this familiar passage. We can't allow sentiment to kick in. We can't allow familiarity to kick in. If we do so, that will keep us from considering what this passage is calling us to focus on, and that is Christ and what it means to follow Him. So how do we avoid allowing sentiment or familiarity to kick in? Well, we need God's help. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this familiar passage. Father, we now come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we ask you, through this passage that you inspired and have preserved for us, Lord, would you show us Christ in all of his glory. And may you do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we now confess to you, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need your word to speak and to reveal yourself to us this morning. So would you do that now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are two vital questions that must be answered from this text about the birth of Christ. And here are the two questions I want us to answer from this text. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? And why was Jesus placed in a manger? Those two questions, I think, are vital questions that we must reflect on here in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Why was Jesus born in a manger? And why, or in Bethlehem? And why was Jesus placed in a manger? Let's begin with that first question. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? I would guess that everyone here knows that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We're just familiar with this story, and we just know this was the birthplace of the Messiah. But why? Why was Jesus born here in Bethlehem? You see, if Joseph and Mary, the ones whom God had chosen to be the earthly parents of the Son of God, if they lived in Nazareth, then how in the world was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Did that just happen? Is Luke just giving us historical details, but there's no significance here? No, the, the, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, it took place in this manner, both for political and theological reasons. Read, read with me again verses 1 through 5. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, 
from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, at first glance, all these verses appear to be doing is describing the historical, uh, the historical setting associated with Jesus' birth. After all, Luke told us in the opening words of this gospel account, he is writing an orderly account. So how do we know this really took place? This, this isn't just a made-up story. Is all Luke doing here is just telling us in these five verses exactly when this took place in, in, in a timeline, in a geographical setting? Is that all he's doing? No, he is doing far more than just allowing the reader to know when these events took place and how this, tra- this couple traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Actually, if we stop and consider the details here, one of the things we will notice is there is a clash between two kingdoms taking place. Notice it again. There is a clash of two kingdoms taking place in verses 1 through 5. You see, the mighty Roman Empire was being used by God for the purpose of His kingdom to fulfill His promises to His people through Jesus Christ. We're not to miss that. This isn't just historical background giving us the setting of when Jesus' birth took place. What we see in these five verses is that the mighty Roman Empire was being used by God for the purposes of His kingdom. Now remember, at this point in history, the Roman Empire was the most powerful empire in the world. Remember, it was the Romans at this point who had defeated Alexander the Great and the Greeks And at this point in world history, they are the dominant superpower on the world's stage. And this man we hear about in verse 1, Caesar Augustus, he's the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And we have historical documents from his reign that often spoke of him with divine-like qualities. He was seen by the people as a God with a little g. He was treated as a God and was to be revered, not just as a military leader, as a political leader, but as a God. And he makes this decree, we're told about in verses 1-5, through that the world should be registered there 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 was a census that was to take place three times we're told in verses one through five that the whole world was to be registered you see in light of this kingdom-wide decree all citizens under roman rule had to take part in this in this census and this census was for the purpose of taxation And in verse 4, Luke informs us that Joseph makes his way to Bethlehem and that Mary is with him and that they went there in order to obey this government mandate. And remember why Joseph is going to Bethlehem. 
because he is a descendant of King David. And this is the city of David, Bethlehem, the birthplace of David. And according to verse 6, while Mary and Joseph were there in Bethlehem, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and she named him Jesus. Now this is significant. And here's why. Because hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God sent a prophet named Micah to his people. And hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God told His people through the prophet Micah, the long-awaited Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Not Jerusalem. But in this little, obscure town of Bethlehem. Now here's the question. If Jesus was born in Bethlehem because his family had to go in light of this government order to be registered. And the prophet Micah hundreds of years prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Is this just coincidence? Did this just happen to take place? Was God up in heaven going, whoo, I'm glad that worked out that way? Or was God orchestrating this event? Was God using this decree by Caesar Augustus to not only move things around and put things in order, but to get at, at the right time and at the right place this couple from Nazareth in Bethlehem at the time that Mary would give birth. See, God used the most powerful man in the known world to carry out His plan. God's kingdom was at work in this world through an earthly kingdom like Rome. Now fast forward. Not only did the Lord use the Roman Empire to carry out His plan for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, but when we come to the end of Luke's Gospel, He will use Roman rulers and the Roman form of execution to accomplish salvation. God was at work, and His kingdom is at work in the kingdoms of this world. And when we consider how God used this particular decree by Caesar Augustus alongside other decrees by secular rulers to fulfill His promises to His people, not only do we get a glimpse of His meticulous providence at work, but we get a glimpse into the nature of His kingdom. Here's how God's kingdom works. God's kingdom is at work through secular governments, government mandates, evil rulers, and even through unjust taxation. God was at work and is still at work today. 
And all throughout Luke's gospel, we, we, we must pay attention to something. This theme we see here in chapter 2, it continues on. We're going to see many times through the gospel of Luke that the Roman government and Jewish officials are going to play a prominent role in the story of Jesus and are going to be a part of God's plan to fulfill His promises to His people. Now, the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it's significant politically, but it's also, and most importantly, it is significant theologically. I spoke a moment a, a moment ago about this prophecy that the prophet Micah gave hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I now want to read this prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Listen to this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That was the prophecy given by God through Micah to his people that one day this king who would re reunite a divided people and not only would he reunite them but he would draw all the kingdoms and nations of this world into his kingdom, that this king would be born in Bethlehem. Now, if it was prophesied hundreds of years ahead of time that the long-awaited Messiah would be born in this little town of Bethlehem, then one of the ways the true Messiah would be identified by God's people as God's anointed would come down to his birthplace. That's not the only factor. But an important part of knowing. Is this the true Messiah. Would come down to where were you born. Because God said. The king that he is sending. Will come from Bethlehem. Now God's plan. To have the Messiah. Born in Bethlehem. Instead of Jerusalem. This was making a loud statement to his people. Not only was Jesus born in Bethlehem, because that is the city of David, and God made a covenant with David that from his line and from his descendants would come the, the, the Messiah, the king of his people, and the king of the nations. But God is making a loud statement by choosing Bethlehem over Jerusalem to say to His people, the kind of king you need is a spiritual king and a spiritual shepherd, not like the kind of kings you associate with the city of Jerusalem. This would be an insult 
Are you, are you serious, God? You're going to pick your king from Bethlehem? That tiny little place, not Jerusalem? Once again, fast forward. It's no wonder that at his triumphal Triumphant entry into Jerusalem in chapter 19. Jesus would later on weep over that city. Because what it represented was not the kind of spiritual leadership the people of God needed. So God provided his king and he brought him out of Bethlehem. What we're going to discover in the coming weeks, just in chapter 2 alone is not only is Jesus the king of the Jews, but Jesus is the king of all the nations of the world. Now, we must not ignore the theological implications of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. We, We must not ignore these implications If we do, it will keep us from understanding his true identity and it will keep us from understanding his true mission. So here's what I want to encourage us to do before moving on. I want to make a couple of suggestions in light of this passage to prepare you and your family for this coming week as we celebrate the birth of Christ. Here are a few practical things I want to encourage us to focus on and to do this week as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ. If we want to avoid what David Garland calls seasonal sentimentality, which over time does foster superficial spirituality, here's here's how we should come to Christmas. We should arrive and reflect on the nativity scene with wonder and worship. It's the only appropriate response. We must arrive ready to worship. We we cannot come to the nativity scene with, with mere sentiment. We cannot just come with familiarity. We can't just come with our traditions. We've got to be careful that even though we may be experiencing grief and pain and sorrows this Christmas, we can't come and miss what all of this is about. We must come with wonder and with worship. And how can we do that? Well, here's one thing I would encourage us all to do this week in particular. Play worship songs that highlight the reason Christ came. There's a reason a number of weeks ago we gave the congregation as a pastoral team that wonderful, wonderful album, Heaven Has Come. We gave it to you, one one reason, just to express our gratitude to you as a congregation. And, and, And we love Sovereign Grace music and we wanted to get in your hands wonderful Christmas songs that celebrate the Savior's birth. But the main reason we gave it to you is so it would be a tool. So that we would not just fall back into the sentimental, traditional time this week of all the things we usually do to celebrate this time of the year. But we would be reminded in very theologically rich ways, why did Christ come and die? 
So I want to encourage you this week in your homes, in your cars, in your devotional times, in your private times. Make time to listen to theologically rich songs that celebrate the reason Christ came. I'm not telling you don't listen to other Christmas carols. I'm not telling you it's wrong to listen to secular ballads. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm I'm just encouraging us this week. If we want to come into this Sunday, this next Sunday, with wonder and worship, we, we must not just allow nostalgia to kick in. We must come informed and intentional. But there's a second thing I think we can do. I want to encourage you as you read the birth narratives, pay careful attention to the way Christ is described. Pay attention to Christ. Pay attention to Christ. That may sound silly. It may sound simple. But if we want to avoid Christmas fiction... Let's not get caught up in many other things in the manger scene. Let's focus on the one thing that matters, and that is Christ. How is He spoken of? Who is He? Why did He come? Who sent Him? Why was He sent? What does that mean for us? Those are the things we must reflect on and spend our time thinking about this week. And the most significant detail we're given by Luke about the birth of Christ was the fact that when Jesus was born, He was laid in a manger. That brings us now to the second question. The second question I want us to answer from this text. Why was Jesus placed in a manger? We've now reflected on why was he born in Bethlehem? There's significance there. Is that true of this manger? Is this one of these things that just happened and Luke's just being a good historian? No theology, no doctrine behind this. He's just stating the facts. Is there something significant here also? I want to invite you to read again verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her, being married, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Notice what Luke does and doesn't do here. Luke does not tell us a lot of details. Luke, Luke actually doesn't tell us that, Luke, that Mary barely made it to Bethlehem before she gives birth. That's usually how we hear the story. That's, that's the prominent way Mary is depicted in every nativity reenactment. We're actually not told that. We have no idea how much time she had spent there before she gave birth. We're just told that while they were there, At some point, she gave birth. What we do know, and what is most important for us to focus on, is the circumstances in which Jesus was born into, they were less than ideal. 
That's what Luke wants us to really focus on. Not get lost in all of the other speculative things. How did it happen? At what time of the day did she have the baby? How much did Jesus weigh? You know, all of those kind of things where we may be concerned with. Luke just says, hey, here's what you need to know. Once he was born, he was treated like any other baby, like any other infant, wrapped in swaddling cloths. He didn't glow he didn't not need a diaper. He was just a normal baby. However, he was laid in the feeding trough where animals eat. That's a significant detail. Once Jesus was born, he's placed in this feeding trough. And why is that? Why is he placed in this feeding trough well Luke tells us because the guest room at this location in which they were staying was not available now why did I just say the guest room at this location was not available well the word here in verse 7 for in is a Greek word that actually is seen later on in Luke's gospel in chapter 22, verse 11. And it speaks of the guest room in which Jesus and his disciples took the Last Supper. So wherever they're staying, the main room was not available. And in the actual word for an inn, as we think of an inn, a place you rent for lodging, that's a different Greek word. It actually appears in Luke's gospel in chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not the same word. So I hate to mess with the Christmas story, but there is no talk of an innkeeper turning people away. We do not know that that happened. Once again, those details are not what matters. The main point Luke wants to emphasize is the manger in which Jesus slept once he was born. That's the thing that we are to, to focus on. A manger. A feeding trough. This is not a place fit for a king to be laid. This is not a place you would lay a normal baby, especially a king, and especially the king of kings. So how did this come about? Well, we must not forget what we just reflected on earlier. If God orchestrated this worldwide registration to take place through the decree of Caesar Augustus in order for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, could he not have arranged for better accommodations for Mary, Joseph, and the baby? Was Jesus so concerned with the macro details he forgot to make a reservation? You see, this was God's plan. It didn't just happen. And Luke's just now reporting it. If God can call Caesar Augustus to create this registration that's going to get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem right when Mary gives birth to Jesus. Could he not make it where there were better accommodations? Of course he could. But he didn't. 
It's by divine design that Jesus was born in such unique circumstances. It's meant to say something to us. See, the manger is a fitting metaphor for the kind of ministry that the Messiah will be about. What kind of Messiah will He be? Look at the manger. Oh, He's going to do miracles. Oh, He's going to teach with authority. But here's the kind of Messiah He is going to be. Look at the manger. If a picture paints a thousand words, you've heard that expression, then we know without a doubt the kind of Messiah He will be. See, unlike the Roman Empire, the kingdom of God does not operate by coercion or through dominance. Think about the images we're given in Luke's gospel, especially at the beginning and the end of this gospel account. Think about the images we're given of the Roman Empire. They rule people through oppressive taxation. And the Romans had created the worst way to kill anybody that other nations called barbaric crucifixion. At the front of this gospel, what do we learn about the Roman Empire? We're going to tax you. And we have the ability not only to kill you, but to do it the most barbaric way. And think about the image of the King of Kings at the beginning and the end of this gospel account. We have a baby in a manger and a Savior making sacrifice for the sins of the world. a very different picture. See, Jesus demonstrates how the kingdom of God operates by modeling humility and sacrifice. The manger was not a coincidence. It was a metaphor. What kind of king is he going to be? He's not going to be a king who rules you by force. He's going to be a king who comes to serve. Listen to these words from the very lips of Jesus at the end of his time with his disciples on the night when he is eating the Passover meal with him. With them, he he said these words to them. Luke 22 verse 27. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. See, the manger would mark the ministry of Jesus from beginning to end. This is the picture we get of the Savior. And let us not forget. Let us not forget. The greatest expression of Jesus' service. Was his willingness to die on the cross. Though he was innocent. He died in our place. To reconcile us to God. We must not forget. As we look at this baby in a manger. To look beyond the manger. And to see the cross. This manger is is meant to point beyond itself to the kind of Savior who is one day going to take the place of sinners like you and like me. So here's the question for us this morning. 
Do these images of Jesus coming to serve and these images of Jesus being willing to die for you, do they make him a king worthy and worth following? Do you remember how this gospel began? Luke tells us in his preface, he wants us to have certainty. And we talked about one of the ways we have certainty in this gospel is not just a certainty by putting all the facts together. I quoted from that last message words from John Piper when he says, there's two ways to know certainty about Jesus. You can do all the kind of things to know, okay, did he really exist? Is, is the New Testament really true? Are these gospel accounts accurate? Or you, you could know he's true the same way you know light is light and sweet is sweet and bitter is bitter. You taste it and you see it. You want to have certainty about Jesus? What kind of king is he? He's a king who was born in a manger and who dies on a cross. Does that make him worth following? As you consider who Jesus is, does he earn your respect? Does he win your trust? And does he make you want to worship him? I pray that he does. And I pray that as we make our way through Luke's gospel, your trust in him will grow. Your love for him will grow. And that the ultimate effect of this gospel account would be that we would worship Jesus in fresh and new ways as we see him as he is. Now lastly, there's one more thing. The way in which Jesus entered into our world ought to remind us of this important truth. And a truth we cannot forget as we gaze upon this baby laying in a manger. What, what is this truth we cannot forget? Well, it's stated once again by Jesus in chapter 9, verse 58. At this point, Jesus is calling disciples to himself. And he says this in, beginning in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why is that? Why did the Son of Man have no place to lay his head from birth to final breath? The answer because his kingdom is not of this world. God is at work in this world. He's working powerfully. He's working providentially. He is at work in this world. But his kingdom is not of this world. And we must not forget this as disciples of Jesus. See our lives must be marked by sacrifice and humility, and generosity, instead of greed, and selfish ambition, because we know this world is not our home. When we see that baby in a manger, it's to remind us, this world is not our home. God's kingdom is at work, but this is not where His kingdom is. There's a kingdom to come. 
And we live for that kingdom. As we gaze upon Jesus in a manger. Listen, here's what we must remember. We must remember to never despise the humble circumstances that God may place us in in order to serve people for His glory. Sometimes God places us in humble circumstances. Maybe it's the place we live. Our people God's called us to associate with. Our positions God calls us to take on. And these places... And these positions and these people are not glamorous. And we can despise those things. We can be ashamed of them. But the manger reminds us never to despise the humble places in which God has placed us. Listen, if Jesus was laid in a manger and died on a cross... And both of those were extremely shameful in that culture. If Jesus was laid in a manger and died on a cross, let us not think that God will call us to live different lives than our master. Do you despise the humble things that sometimes God puts you through or places you in? May this Christmas reorient us. We don't despise them. We welcome them. Because we have a Savior who was laid in a manger and died on a cross. And we are called, as Dr. Garland reminds us at the end, not to just be sentimental about this story. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 weren't put in our Bible for Christmas time. They are a part of the entire Gospel of Luke that calls us to be followers of Jesus. So let's not isolate this passage as a Christmas text. It's a text like every other text saying these truths have a bearing on how you get up tomorrow and live your life. So let us, let us come to these texts and reflect on them and be affected by them. And let us gaze at our Savior and let us ask God, to help us follow in his steps. Let's pray. Father, we now ask that you would do that very thing. You would help us to see Jesus, the King, in all of his beauty, in all of his splendor and majesty. That he is like no other king. Though he is sovereign and powerful and transcendent. He has come near. He doesn't rule us. By might but by grace. Oh Lord would you draw our. Eyes to Jesus in these next few days in a very pronounced way and may the result of us thinking about Jesus born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, may it change the way we think about Him and the way we live our lives. Only you can do that, Lord. So we pray that you would now write these truths on our hearts 
And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us to be transformed by the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.